but it's cool. Yeah, but it'll it'll be stuff. <coughs> it'll be stuff. Sh- 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 stuff with stuff. Stuff with stuff. <laughs> Welcome to. Oh no. <laughs> uh, okay, you do the intro. Looking for my intro words because <laughs> mm. I still don't know them. Specifically, the part where it says "I'm Steph." I imagine that's the that's bit the that you... part that I definitely yeah. don't remember. I'm Steph. <laughs> <laughs> I have stuff. <laughs> I have stuff to share. <laughs> Hi, Tom. Hi, Tom. <laughs> This is gold right here. (laughs) Hello and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed. I'm Steph. And I'm Chris. And we're developers here at ThoughtBot hoping to share a few of our adventures with you each week. So what's new with you, Chris? On the continuing saga of mechanical keyboards in the Boston office, which really is a continuing saga, there is now, what is that, an 87, 86 key tester in front of you? 86. There are 86 keys with different colors and activation forces and... One of our colleagues, Devin, purchased a tester thing, and so it has all of the different variety of keys. It actually feels really weird. I've typed across it, and so my fingers are on different types of keys, and it feels terrible. (laughs) Those are sound effects from Steph. Uh, It's my new sound effect board. But yeah, it is impressive. I just keep seeing each day we come in, someone's got a new keyboard, and now there's this ridiculous tester, and yeah, this whole thing's blown up. Yeah, and Devin went far above and beyond because I know you'd mentioned about getting one of the switch testers, but I think you were thinking about getting one that had like maybe 10 keys or something on it. Nine, 10, something like that. A reasonable number. Just one of each color. I don't even know what all of these are. Like he brought it over to my desk Mm -hmm. to play with, but I haven't asked Devin for, I need a guide. I need something that will tell me what each key is, what each switch is to understand. There's a bunch of colors, but... (laughs) They also have like a gradient or, yeah, it kind of looks like a gradient going across. Mm. So they have a bunch of reds, a bunch of blues that I imagine are just various types of switches, but maybe still a blue switch. I think some of them, so there's like a column or a section of blues, which are Cherry MX blues, but then they have different activation forces, I believe, is the Ah. difference there. So you can have blue isn't a fully descriptive thing. It's a blue with a something micro-Newton activation forcer. I'm getting the units wrong, but... I just made up a unit there. It's fine. Uh, but it's a <laughs> bunch of different... Just my eyebrows went up. <laughs> yeah. It's a bunch of different variations like that. But it's impressive to me for any given topic how deep the rabbit hole goes. There's a wonderful XKCD about crazy straws. And it's basically making a joke about how any given topic or like hobby is fractally subdivided. So if you go deeper, you're like, oh, well, so there's regular keyboards and mechanical keyboards, right? It's like, no, no, no. It goes way deeper than that. And it's just been interesting watching this evolve within our office. As much as I'm enjoying them, mostly I'm enjoying them because people are talking to me about them. Like <laughs> Devin, when he got the keyboard switch tester, he's very excited, which made me so excited because I, I already would have been excited to see it. But it just makes me happy seeing other people that are also excited about this and then wanting to share that with me. But I'm also relieved that I have my two keyboards, so I feel set. Like, I'm, I'm good for a little while, but I do have at least one more near goal that I want to reach where my Leopold keyboard doesn't have some of the switches that I want. Like, I, I haven't figured out if I can control the volume on that keyboard, and it doesn't seem to be like a function combination that I can press another key. So Devin has offered to help me where he has used a program called Keyboard Maestro that will help you change what the keys map to. So I'm going to have to check that out next just because it frustrates me to have to like reach to my laptop or my mouse to change the volume. 
yeah, definitely. I would not be happy with that. The keyboard that I have, the Leopold, does have, there's a function key. And if I use that, I just have to know where the, the media keys are. But I've already memorized that and feel pretty comfortable with it. Does it um, show you an icon for the media keys on the key on the switch? No, no. That's why I had to memorize it and figure it out. But Okay. I'll take another pass at mine because I really think it's not there, but maybe I am just missing it. And it sounds like that's why programs like Keyboard Maestro exist for this purpose. I mean, Keyboard Maestro is a nice thing that can like go way further as well. So like one of the coolest things that I've heard with a piece of software like that is the idea of, I think it's HyperKey, but I may just be misrepresenting that. It's the idea that your caps lock, which is a useless key to be clear. Instead, some people map that to escape or control. I use control personally, but I've heard people say, oh, I'll map it to escape if I tap it, but control if I hold it. And that's the coolest thing I've heard of with Keyboard Maestro mm. or similar utilities where you can get to like another level or I think the hyper key might actually be a particular combination of keys that like sets up another layer. And so now your whole keyboard opens up as if you hit this like control option, shift, whatever, something like that, hyper, now every key is active and does something different, sort of like Vim, but your whole keyboard for the whole operating system. I wanna say Brett Terpstra is the person whose blog I read that does a lot of this sort of stuff. We can include links to all of these things, but. Ideally, yeah, it's it's nice if it's just built into the keyboard and you don't have to know it. And my guess is it's in there and you just have to figure out the right function to F1 sort of combo. But So thinking about it, because it was a little while that I looked into this, I feel like I saw other people asking the same question. And the answer was it doesn't have it, but you can use a program to make it happen. Hmm. So that's why I feel a little more confident that I'm not just missing yeah. it <laughs> and overlooking it just because a couple of other people asked the same question. And that seems to be the answer. So one of these days... I'll see if Devin's got time to work with me and go through Keyboard Maestro. Well, I wish you the best of luck on that. It's interesting to hear you say, like, I've got my two. I'm good. Like, you've maxed out there. I have my one. I'm contemplating a second one from home. But then Amanda has been sharing with me one that it's a tiny, tiny little compact keyboard that has mode layers within it. And there's a feature for controlling a mouse through the keyboard. So, like, WASD actually moves the mouse around. And then I want to say it's, like, Q and E are a left click and a right click. And it sounds like such a bad idea, but I really want to try it. <laughs> like, I don't like the mouse. That's that's a thing that's true about me. So could I just get it into the keyboard? Do you use the Vim bindings for when you're using your browser as well? Yes. Okay. I have Vimium installed, and I absolutely love that. And it's to the point that my hands think that that's part of every browser. And so if I'm ever pairing with someone, sometimes it actually works because other people at ThoughtBot have Vimium installed. But often my hands try to go to a link, and I'm like, well, how do you click links? Oh, right, the mouse. That's how people click links. I forgot about that. That's a, yeah. Yeah, I'm one of those people. I don't have that. So you would not know how to click links in my environment. But yeah, so yeah, more keyboard adventures and things in the office. But um, yeah, what's up with you? So the past two weeks, I think we talked about this in the previous episode as well. I have been doing lots of pairing where it's been consistent every day. It's really right after stand up till the end of the day. And I'm someone who absolutely loves pairing. Like I am all for it. And I've often wondered if I would really enjoy the pivotal style of where you always work on a ticket with someone else and you're always pairing with somebody because that seems very in line with my personality and how I like to learn. And I've discovered that I think I've hit my threshold. <laughs> you have found the top or the bottom. I have found yeah. the top. But for me, I've discovered that two weeks is is it. I had yesterday where I wasn't pairing and it was just a really nice reprieve. And I'm pairing with someone that is awesome. They're delightful to work with and we've made very solid progress. And I feel like we've made as much progress as we've made because we're working together. So that part has been perfect. 
But having yesterday off to just sort of like be in my own space and not have to communicate every thought that I was going through as I was making changes or considering code was really nice. So I found my, my threshold for when I need a break. Maybe I could do that process if it was like pairing for four days, one day off, pairing for four days, one day off, something like that. I wonder if it would also be some of the structure of how you're pairing. So as far as I understand it, you've been driving primarily, and I think that's of the two modes, of the two roles, that's the more tiresome one. You're talking out loud and you're doing the typing on the keyboard and all of that. So I think that's probably part of it. I also wonder if there's like a five hours a day and then there's one hour a day of like your own time going off and exploring things and like a daily reset as opposed to a, having a weekly cadence to this. Like I also don't know. I've never pushed pairing to that level where I've found an edge. I've always just like, this is great. I remember one week actually where I paired pretty much the entire week. And I do remember getting to the end of that one and being like, oh, tired. I just want to sleep and not talk for a while. <laughs> and that's actually, I think, one of the characteristics for me when I get too much pairing is I just don't want to talk. I don't know if that's like an introvert and extroversion thing or mm. I don't know. do you think of yourself as an introvert, extrovert? Where do you fall on that spectrum? Or do you not think about that? I've thought about it, but okay. not not deeply. Like I've heard so many different definitions and I'm ways to like figure out which one you are. And I honestly think it just depends on the day and my mood as to which one I fall into. So I, I don't really know which category I fit into. I feel like this is fairly common. Like I'm one of those individuals, like I like being with people, but I certainly have a max. Like I'm not one of those individuals that necessarily gets a lot of energy from people. Like I still need to walk away and take a break, but yet I do prefer being in an office and working with folks. So mm. I get energy from people that way. So yeah, I have no idea. I think you're an ambivert. Oh, okay. Yes. The middle option. Cool. I like that middle. Yeah, you might be that secret middle option of ambivert, but uh, maybe everybody is. Who knows? Us in the middle options. We're consistently seeking middle options. I mean, that kind of fits the (laughs) ThoughtBot vibe. Yeah, that's fair. So that's been just sort of like a fun personal data point to know that I have been given the opportunity to pair so much that I was ready to take a break from it. I also think it would change if we were pairing in person. I think that would change the vibe a little bit just because when someone's remote, I feel like I'm giving the extra effort to make sure we can see each other, that I'm saying everything to them. They don't have body language to work with. It's not as easy to switch back and forth, even though we are using a program called Tuple that's letting us share the screen. There's still a little bit of lag where sometimes depending on someone's Wi-Fi, it may not feel as comfortable to just switch who's driving. So that's been part of it, too. But one of the other interesting parts, as part of the reason we've been pairing so consistently for a while, is because we're working on a very substantial ticket that involves exploring what we've discovered are some dead code paths, as well as looking into some refactoring and introducing some new logic. So we've had a lot to work through, and it made sense while we were going through it and still understanding the world, is to do it all in one PR. And now that we've done that PR, we've made enough assumptions along the way to the existing logic and then introduced our new code that I felt uncomfortable like issuing that as a PR. I still did just to go ahead and like push it up. So if someone wanted to see it, but looking at it, it's like 19 files changed, which is pretty big, but it's more about the big change to the system that I'm concerned about. So I started looking for ways to pull out slices of that work to then issue smaller PRs that aren't necessarily related to the new logic, but maybe something that we refactored and that could be shipped on its own. I really love that practice of constantly trying to find the smallest version of a change or ways to break a change down, even when they're not like, oh, it's a reasonable size PR. Like, Still, is there a way that we could introduce this and I don't know, trying to be kind to your reviewers and things like that? 
is so nice when you're on the receiving end of a pull request and you're like, what all happened here? This looks like uh, we really got after it on this PR and, and it's just so hard to read and so hard to get that context. And then I've definitely found the case where if large PRs become the norm, then folks get normalized to the idea that I can't really code review this. I guess I'll scan it for minor inconsistencies and we end up back in that mode. Less of the, oh, that's interesting. Do you think you could extract this and rename it? That's the level of stuff that I love in code review and looking for bugs or hunting for like, oh, break the new line here. That's to me not as valuable. But when you end up with these giant PRs that I don't know, I can't have any other value add. I want to say something. Yeah, and I think it goes along nicely with the theme where we try to keep PRs reviewable and keep them small and focused on the change to help the person who's reading. But we also take that strategy when we're giving code review. So when we are making a suggestion that someone changes something, we go out of our way to provide an example of what we think they could change it to. So we're not just saying like, hey, what do you think of extracting this to a class or changing this method to work like this and then just giving them an idea. I've noticed that a lot of times, at least I certainly do, and I've seen you do it as well and other thought botters, where we'll provide a short code sample that's like, hey, this is sort of what I have in mind to give them something concrete. But it's the idea of making it easy to say yes to that suggestion. And that's something that I really enjoy doing as well. So yeah, kind of falls in line with that whole keep it easy, try to make it as easy as possible for the person to say yes, whether they are adding your change or if they're reviewing your change. I end up writing a lot of code in code review, a lot of prose as well. I try and write you know, the words around it and the explanation as to the why or if I'm suggesting a different shape of code. But then often, probably 50% of the time, I'm including at least some code snippet in my code review prose that I'm writing. And again, exactly what you're saying. Like, I want it to be easy for them to take this change. I want the code to be in this other shape. I want to encourage and pave that path as much as I can so that the version of the world that I want to exist is more likely to exist. So it's selfish in a manner of speaking. Yeah, I could see how it's a a selfish intent or selfish desire where you want like your version or your idea of the code to live on. But I also think it's a very clear way of that person to then see what you're thinking and then make it very easy to implement. So you're taking work off of them. Or if they are not inclined to take your changes, it's also very easy for them to see exactly what it is you're proposing. So there's no missed ideas there versus if you're just using prose, they may think you're implying to do one thing and they say no to that when instead you are truly implying something else. So I still really appreciate the clarity that it provides when folks leave like a small code example or what it is that they're suggesting the change would look like. I also I try to draw the line in the sand that I don't want to suggest things in code review that I don't have a clear path forward on. And so part of providing those code samples or if I'm suggesting a different name or I'm suggesting extracting a method, I typically go through the exercise of coming up with a couple of examples because I don't want to be in the mode of saying, I don't like this thing or I object to this change, but I don't have a better suggestion. So I'm just being a naysayer, essentially. I feel like that can just drag things down. So I really want to make sure that I'm always in the mode of, Have you considered this as an alternative and providing a a concrete version of the this that I'm talking about as opposed to the abstract? Like, I feel like you could extract it and have a better name there, but not offering any possible example of that better name. Oh, yeah. I like that because it is easy to sit back and judge something and be like, well, I don't know if that's going to work or I don't care for this. But if you've taken the time to try to come up with an alternative and one didn't think of something, then that person did a good job of providing a solution and presenting it to you. Or two, if you do think of an option, great, share it. But I like the idea that if you don't have like a better suggestion, then it perhaps falls into the not saying anything category. 
Although if I'm the author of the PR, I will often ask for help and I'll call this out and say, hey, I don't think this is great or I'm not sure about this naming. If anyone has suggestions, like please feel free to provide them. Self-code review. I love documenting my PRs. I'm a big fan of it. I'll go through, especially if I learned anything or if I found something interesting or I removed some test case and then I know if someone's looking at it, they're going to wonder like, why did I remove that test case? What was weird about it? So yeah, I I love self-documenting my PRs to just like guide the reader along. Well, I think again, it comes to making it easy on the reader, on the person that's doing the code review, because if there's going to be that back and forth where someone's going to read it, you know that they quite possibly will hit this thing and be like, huh, why did they remove this test case? We like tests, don't we? So you can get ahead of that, handle the objections, if you will, and then be able to like close off one round of back and forth. And then it's a little bit smoother of a process, a little bit more clear. So yeah, I'm definitely a fan. Does this mean that we would have any capacity for being good at sales? We're always trying to get someone to say yes. <laughs> I mean, my belief is that code and sales are both forms of communication, and we focus on effective communication. We yell at the computer a bunch to try and get it to do stuff. <laughs> we talk to the other humans to then yell at the computer to do stuff. I think, yes, we're selling the computer all day, every day. All right, career pivot. or <laughs> just sales slash developers. I'm just kidding. I don't want to do sales. It's a lovely career, but I've done it once, and it's a very hard career. <laughs> You've done it? I what have. did you do in sales? I ran a water park. So I was working in South Carolina for the recreation division, and they had three water parks that they had just built. And to increase revenue, they wanted companies to rent out those water parks. So I was a salesperson calling up companies and saying, hey, wouldn't you like to rent out an entire water park for your company event? Wouldn't that be amazing? I can help you do that. It's a lot of fun. I was very cool. I have a niece who was like perfect age for a water park when I had that job. So I was a very cool aunt. Any age is the perfect age for a water park. Uh, that's fair. <laughs> Although they are a little smaller water parks. So they're mm. they're typically more for kids. But yeah, they were certainly like great for adults as well. Wow. This is such an interesting little tidbit <laughs> to learn about you. A lot of things make more sense now. Oh, yeah? No, not okay. at all. <laughs> but it is a really interesting little tidbit. Yeah, I've done some sales and call center and worked with horses. Those are probably my three out there (laughs) previous life careers. (laughs) I like how you said those, like that was a very logical sequence of things. Well, there was sales, there was a call center, and then there was horses. Oh yeah. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) They just go together naturally. Sure, and then of course, mechanical keyboards. And uh, yeah, yeah, it's a very obvious linear progression. I've clearly known my life path all along. (laughs) I haven't figured it out on the fly at all. (laughs) We're gonna take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor, Honey Badger. Honey Badger is a zero instrumentation, 360-degree coverage of errors, outages, and service degradations for your web apps. If you have a web app, you need it. Honey Badger works on all of our favorite languages and frameworks, including Ruby on Rails, JavaScript, specifically React and Vue, Laravel in the PHP world, and Elixir in Phoenix. Honey Badger is different from other error trackers. They go beyond errors to give you full confidence in the health of your production systems. Their integrated exception, uptime, and cron slash service monitoring will save your bacon. Your next outage will be easier to diagnose and fix, and your customers will be happier. With everything in one place, you'll spend less time managing team access and alerts. I don't have extensive experience using Honey Badger, but I know it is one of the defaults that we reach for. And if I were setting up a new application, given how easy it is to get up and running with Honey Badger and to start tracking errors and alerts, I would certainly reach for it out of the gate. Yep, absolutely. Or actually, I would just use Suspenders for any Rails app. And at this point, it is our default option in Suspenders. And it's nice to just have that consistency, especially across different languages and things with JavaScript and React and Vue and things like that, or Elixir and Phoenix, and then Rails, obviously. 
So head on over to honeybadger.io and let them know that you heard about Honey Badger from the bike shed during signup. And thanks to Honey Badger for sponsoring today's episode. So now that we've explored my previous job history, <laughs> uh, how are things going with you and your client? Things are going really well. I'm having a wonderful time there. It's a great organization. I'm really enjoying the work that I'm doing there. Although it's been interesting, the role that I'm in has transitioned. I think I hinted at this last week, but I've, I've dug in more and doing more of it. So the work that I'm doing, it's myself and one other developer from the client team. And we are working on sort of infrastructure, refactoring, tech debt cleanup sort of things. It's a very abstract idea, but it's end goal is to increase developer velocity and robustness of the application that we're working on with some particular goals around testing and updating some libraries, removing some libraries, refactoring a couple of patterns within the application, and sort of just exploring that type of work as a top-level mandate of, like, let's do some refactoring. So I think it's an interesting thing to have a team dedicated to that. And I think eventually we'll figure out, you know, how to work alongside the other teams most effectively. But... Yeah, I'm curious about that. So you have a whole team dedicated to refactoring. Are there specific user-facing reasons for why you want to refactor? Is it truly just a, hey, go please improve this part of the code base? Like, how do you know what to refactor? So I think there's the tendency with this sort of work to sort of just dive into the weeds and pick the stuff that is interesting to, say, myself and the other developer. We're trying to be purposeful about it and with the goal of improving velocity. So this isn't necessarily targeting any end user facing functionality. We don't want to change the app. This should be purely technical refactoring or changing the technical underpinnings of the app. But in that sense, I think of our user or our sort of customer is the other developers at the team. So we're trying to reach out to them and start to have conversations of like, what are your major pain points? What are the things that are slowing you down or introducing bugs or anything like that? day-to-day and week-to-week so that we can prioritize and tackle those. So we have a backlog that is ideally dictated by the needs of the rest of the developer organization. That's cool. So you're a team supporting the other developers and helping them increase velocity. I always love that role. I mean, that's the dream. It's been tricky thus far, particularly... I made a questionable decision early on. So we had a bunch of different things that we had highlighted as areas that we wanted to work on. And a bunch of them were fundamental refactorings. Like we have Redux in this application, but we don't necessarily need it. Uh, We're using GraphQL and Redux isn't actually serving us terribly well. So we might want to pull that out. But doing that, that's a pretty surgical change. And so we would want to have as much testing infrastructure around it as possible. Actually, one of the first things that I did when I came into this organization was the end-to-end tests had been failing for various reasons, somewhat intermittently and then also more consistently. So one of my first pull requests was to delete the end-to-end tests, which was an aggressive take, to be honest. Wait, all um, all of the end-to-end tests? Uh, no, I didn't actually delete them. I just deleted the section of the CircleCI config that said run the end-to-end test. So I turned them <laughs> off, essentially. Uh, <laughs> that was a strong first move. <laughs> yes. Uh, I talked with people before it, and I opened it as a whip pull request, and I tried to have as much conversation around it. And everyone's response was similar. It was like, oh, God. Yeah, I mean, they're failing right now, so I guess they're not providing us any utility, but let's get them back as soon as possible. And uniformly, everyone was in agreement on... This makes sense right now. We need to fix it as soon as possible. So let's do that. So then as I transitioned into this infrastructure team role, I was looking at our backlog and I was like, well, I mean, for anything that we're going to do, we really want to have the end-to-end tests back in place and back running. So I think I'll just start with that. I stand by the logic of that choice. (laughs) Unfortunately, turns out end-to-end tests are complicated. And that is what I have run into. And it has been, at this point, two weeks of 
thrashing about and fighting and running into every type of issue, build systems and package managers and circle CI configs and works on my machine, but not on that machine and TypeScript test compilation, just every single thing that I can imagine each day. I'm like, okay, cleared out that issue. Why don't they run now? Why don't they run now? Why don't they run now? Are they, when you say, why don't they run now? Are they running, but not passing or they're truly like just not running on CI? The answer to that question has changed every day. So like each day I'm tackling one new aspect of what the complexity is. So for a little while, it was just getting them back up and running at all, like locally on my machine. And that was working, but because they had been turned off for a little while, the UI had drifted. And so selectors had changed, form field names had changed and things like that. So there was a little bit of updating for that. It's very straightforward and expected, so that was fine. Then once I got those working, somebody bumped the version of the library that we're using for it behind the scenes, and that broke TypeScript compilation of the test files. And that one was really subtle and confusing because the tests, you run through the like CLI, and so they implicitly have the context of that thing, but TypeScript doesn't know that. So I had no idea how TypeScript was figuring out what the types of anything were. This is sort of JavaScript magic that TypeScript needs to try and meet where it is. And frankly, TypeScript has such a hard job. Mm -hmm. But I was able to fix that by reverting the bump of the version of our testing library. Interestingly, we're using Test Cafe on this system. Test Cafe is similar to Cypress. So it's a browser automation end-to-end testing. So it's like spin up a browser, hit a server. So ideally, you have a real server that's running either locally or otherwise, and then you're interacting very much as a user. So go find this form element, fill it in, click things, but it's through browser automation. We went with Test Cafe because we very specifically wanted to make sure we had cross-browser support, specifically Safari and Chrome. And so Test Cafe does that, which is a really nice feature, where Cypress only targets Chrome. Oh, I didn't know that. That's really yeah. nice. Yeah, I've used Cypress, and yeah. I really enjoyed that. I haven't heard of Test Cafe. Does it also do, can it do IE? Can it do other versions? I think it can do IE. It can also target remote browsers. And so there's a way to use browser stack. And I feel like I've seen IE through that. And so you can even have different versions of them via that sort of configuration. So you spin up a remote browser on one of those, like a, a browser stack type system, and then you connect to it remotely. But if we're being honest, this is also a lot of complexity to take on. Like Cypress only targets Chrome. And frankly, a lot of developers only author in Chrome. And none of that is great, but it is simpler. trying to work against multiple browsers. And it's not that the app doesn't necessarily work in multiple browsers. There have been regressions, and that's part of the reason that we want to do this. But at the end of the day, the app mostly just works in both browsers, and it's the test automation layer that is really difficult. Right now on CircleCI, I have the Chrome tests running, but the Safari tests won't run because in order to get Safari on CircleCI, you got to do a bunch of stuff that involves Xcode in ways that I don't fully understand yet. That's a good point. I feel like most of the things that break if I'm testing between Chrome and Safari are going to be more UI, like stylistic changes that break, but it's typically not functionality breakage that occurs, unless I'm talking IE, and then there may be something that happens where some styling prevents the user from being able to access a button or something like that could happen. But yeah, that's, that is interesting. If it's worth trying to test on Safari and Chrome, are you taking screenshots and comparing that each page looks the same or looks as it should? Are you doing that extent of testing or just the functionality? This is just workflow functionality. Actually, there's another project or conversation that's happening. The first group that I was working with was building a component module. So like the internal React design system that everyone's going to be using. So like the buttons are designed there and card and other base visual components like that, or some functional components as well. 
One of the tools they're looking at for that is called Percy.io, which is a hosted service, I want to say. I've actually not worked with it, but I'm just loosely familiar. And it does visual screenshot comparison and then has some nice overlays and I think integration with GitHub and maybe Circle. And I'm not sure how that Venn diagram gets drawn, but that's one option. And then there's also just screenshots, which can actually like target an element on the page, I want to say. Mm, um, so okay. that's cool, but that's a separate consideration. So it's less about we want consistent visual look and feel in the test suite that I'm working with. It's more we want to make sure the workflow. Can can a user sign up in both Safari and in Chrome? Ideally, other browsers, but really those are the two core ones. Yeah, that's most of my end-in testing experience. I haven't gone down the road. I've heard that Jess can do like the screenshots and then be able to compare, but I haven't pulled that in before for a project. I just haven't felt the need. Like I still look to make sure that things look the same, but I haven't felt the need to like add that to my test suite to make sure that nothing has changed visually because it's really the functionality that ultimately I care about the most as to whether something is broken or not. Just because something changed visually doesn't necessarily mean the user is going to think it's broken, but if a button doesn't work or an action doesn't take place that they expect that feels broken. Have you worked with React Testing Library? On the... I haven't. You've mentioned this to me. I was using a different one when I was on a React project. Probably I, Enzyme? That must have been it. Yeah. I really can't recall, but I'm pretty sure it wasn't React Testing. I'm a huge, huge fan of React Testing Library. In practice, it's just a good way to write tests, but I really love the philosophy behind it. It focuses on interacting again pretty much from the user perspective and it actually has accessibility built in from the core so you're using selectors that are around label text or visible elements and nothing hidden nothing secret no deep nested selectors or things like that it's saying like if you can't interact with this through accessible means then this page is broken essentially and i love that not just for accessibility concerns but i believe that that builds better apps you know for the reasons that i think accessibility is a wonderful concern because it leads to better apps having your tests enforce that or be the way that you interact is it's just real neat so is it reviewing specific accessibility rules or ideals when it's looking to test or is it testing in a way that also says like this is probably going to support accessibility cuz now i'm curious how some of the other testing libraries are then triggering actions. Like I would imagine a lot of that also requires on the page having some accessibility rules applied to it, but maybe not. So React Testing Library doesn't actually directly concern itself with accessibility as far as I can tell. Instead, all of the selectors or all of the utility functions that you're using to target elements on the page are abstracted to the level that it's essentially like you're a user interacting with the page. So one of the things you can do is get by alt text. So alt text is great for accessibility. And it's the way that in theory we should be saying like this element is this thing or get by role is another one. And so role is used by ARIA and things like that. And I'm frankly getting way outside of my accessibility knowledge zone, but it's the idea is that it provides an interface for interacting with your components that are accessibility first, essentially. It also tends to just be a really nice abstracted way to work with components. So instead of deeply nested things like poking in there and getting at the state or anything like that, that is this low level concern inside your components, it's at the higher level. Like, yeah, I know it's just a card on the page, but let's pretend that our entire app is just a card. I'm a user looking at that card. If I click the button, I should see the text, hello. You write tests in that manner when you're working with React Testing Library. And what's interesting is the recent addition of React Hooks was a time that a lot of test suites broke or didn't necessarily break, but people couldn't make that transition because they had been testing lower level internals and then they were sort of stuck 
on the version of React or the aspects of React that they were using, because they were testing low-level internals. React testing library, your test in theory should work consistently across versions of React because you're testing that higher level thing. I'm curious, do you have an example of a lower level item that you're testing? I'm trying to think of an example. With Enzyme, there are a lot of things where you're like semi-mounting a component and then you may set the props on the component or set the state or ask for the props or the state after a given change. And those are very low level internal aspects of the component. Those are not the externally visible like changes in the DOM. Oh, and some people are checking those values at the integration level? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Okay. I guess the distinction there would be at the integration level becomes a little blurrier. Enzyme has probably lower level tests. React testing library is just like, whatever. A component's like a mini app. Have fun. I don't know that that's actually a philosophy that React testing library would say that it has, but that's my point of view, is treat each component like it's a tiny mini app and then test it as such. Cool. So what's your uh, next step for the test? Are you almost there? It sounds like you're still in the trenches. Uh, It has been a series of in the trenches. There were also complex things around how do we actually spin this app up and test against the GraphQL backend. Initially, we wanted to try and do it with a mocked out backend, but that didn't work due to the way that the app interacts with the GraphQL backend. It made a few assumptions about data that were really hard to work with a truly abstracted mock backend. We would have had to make the mock smarter than we wanted it to be. And so we opted to back away from that. So then this week was really just like, just need to get the test running. I've targeted one specific test, which is the user sign-up flow. So a user can sign up, and then the sign-up involves Auth0 form, filling out that data, and then going on to a few different forms to capture other information. So it's a very important flow, because that's how users get into the system. And it spans a few pages. It felt like a good representative, you know, first thing. And it didn't have necessity on the back end knowing anything beforehand. We can run that from a zero state, and it should always work. This past week was just a sequence of annoying things. And then finally, it was like 4.50 yesterday afternoon. So my last day on the project for the week. And I had this moment of like, wait, what if? And so I tested a new thing, which had to do with how the app actually gets built and found, actually was able to make the test pass on CircleCI, which is the first time that that's happened. And I got to leave on that note. I was like, cool, all right, feel free to play with this tomorrow. I'll be back on Monday. But I'm so glad that I've seen them pass once. Oh, that's awesome. That's a nice feeling to walk away on that note. Yeah, my brain was just like, well, I'm unloading all this context, but you know what? Now that you mention it, and it's one of those weird things where an idea showed up in my brain, and I was like, why haven't you been here the whole time? What were you doing? Brain, you should have thought of this a while ago, but I was glad I had the thought at the end of the day, so. Just needed time to bubble up. It did, yeah. I needed that eureka moment, but yeah, so that's been my adventure I'm excited to go back next week because I think that like really unblocked things. And now I can dive back into things next week and hopefully make some real progress. But that's been my week. But uh, yeah, what else is up in your world? So I have said yes to a scary thing. Well, right now it feels scary. I'm sure it'll be a little less daunting as I get closer to time. I'm going to host a health tech workshop. It is a ThoughtBot run workshop. It'll be online so folks can RSVP and participate remotely. And it's very similar to giving a talk where I'm going to present some information that's around how ThoughtBot works with clients who have very specific compliant needs that they need to achieve when they're shipping features, if they're hosting their application. So around some information around how we help those clients, also how we still consider product design and shipping incrementally. So yeah, that is on my plate and something that I'm thinking about more and more as we get closer to when that workshop is taking place. That's very exciting. And we definitely have a a number of healthcare, health tech clients in Boston. And then you particularly have a history of having worked with health tech companies. So I think you are the perfect person to lead that. I'm very excited to see the workshop. 
Thanks. I'm excited for it, too. Uh, we have a link where folks can go ahead and RSVP and mark the date so we can put that in the show notes. One quick note before we go. We won't be releasing a new episode next week. But we will be back the following week with a brand spanking new episode. So keep an ear out for that. So on that note, I think we can wrap up. Let's wrap up. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. The show is produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you enjoyed listening, one really easy way to support the show is to leave us a quick rating or even a review in iTunes, as it really helps others find the show. If you have feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore Bike Shed or reach me at Chris Toomey on Twitter. And I'm at S. Vicari. Or hosts at bikeshed.fm via email. Thanks so much for listening to The Bike Shed, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. Join our team dedicated to creating products people love to use. With open positions at our studios in Boston, New York, San Francisco, Austin, London, and Raleigh-Durham, come discover a better way to work.